0: And um, I seem to have had a little wardrobe malfunctional incident. I was going to do like a little promo for the coffee ministry, like we need a leader. I had my prop here and, and anyway, um, so sorry. We, um, we do need a leader for the coffee ministry though, if you'd like to just, we have people that brew the coffee, we just need somebody to kind of like coordinate it and all that. Um, but does anybody have any tide to go? Oh, wait. I I have some. Hold on. There we go. Somehow I'm 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 feeling like this isn't quite sufficient. Okay. I'm just gonna press push through. You know, I, I'm gonna forget about this and we're just gonna do what we always do and just kinda keep on trucking. We're in Zechariah chapter three. If you want to open your Bibles, it's like the second to last book in the old testament. Um so if you want to like open to Matthew and then flip back a, a few pages, that, that will work. Um, we are doing this series, right, on on 20 chapters of redemptive history, and there's a lot in Zechariah that, uh, that that's informative for us as we think about God setting the stage for Jesus to come. Uh, there's places in Zechariah that you, maybe you've never actually read the prophet Zechariah, if not. Go for it. You know it's it's all part of the Bible, but I know you've heard some references from Zechariah because they're all over the New Testament. So, for instance, you know the triumphal entry, uh, all the people are you know lauding Jesus and so, shouting Hosanna and so on. That is in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble? And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So um, chances are you, you, you've heard that reference from Zechariah 9. There's a, another passage in chapter 12 that talks about uh, the crucifixion. It says, um, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. And that's referenced in the New Testament. Uh, chapter 13, Jesus you know, quotes Zechariah when Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So there's like a some estimates are there's about 54 passages in Zechariah that are quoted over 67 times referenced or quoted in the New Testament. So we're we're looking at chapter 3 now, which is a again another way that God is setting the stage for his people to understand what's happening when Jesus comes. And before we read the passage what Michael did a few moments ago when he was reading from Zechariah chapter 2, you know, and you've got this picture of the Lord, you know, rising up and redeeming his people, and then there's silence in heaven because of the, the power and majesty of our God. That silence is what immediately precedes chapter 3 the demonstration of God's power, the demonstration of his redemption, his salvation. So let's stand and see what the silence, what the awe, what the wonder is all about. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes or or seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for for showing us more clearly the importance of the ministry of Jesus, our our high priest, the one who, who takes our sins away, the one who clothes us with his righteousness the one who sends us out as priests to invite the world to receive these blessings. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Please be seated. Um, One commentator I was reading said that uh, reading the first half of Zechariah is like looking through a kaleidoscope. Do you remember those? those things and you turn them and the little pieces of plastic or glass or whatever turn and they make these cool patterns in the light Um, because you get eight different visions in those first uh, four chapters of Zechariah and they just give you um, a, a whole lot of different perspectives on God's redemptive work. So chapter three is the fourth vision and this is at night and you know, what Zechariah sees uh, is, is something that he doesn't have a category for because he's never seen anything like this where you've got the high priest in filthy garments. And then he gets pure vestments and then there's some more you know, implications for the, the priesthood of God. What should God's priests be, be doing? Um, well, we're introduced to a number of people here. So you know, there's Joshua the high priest, there's the angel of the Lord, uh, there's Satan or the accuser. Uh, there's, there's some people that are sitting before Joshua and, you know, who are they and, and so on. But let's talk about Joshua. Uh, this isn't some kind of isolated reference to him. Uh, he is the high priest after uh, the people of God have been returned from their deportation. They're, they're back in Jerusalem, in Judah, from Babylon. Uh, So this is good, right? Um, Man, it looks like God's promises are being fulfilled. Uh, We're we're going the right direction, and we're coming home. And so progress has begun on rebuilding the the wall around the city, on rebuilding the temple. But if we were to, to, to go on and read more in Zechariah, it's the day of small things meaning there's not much progress. Meaning what got off to this sort of thrilling start has ground to really slow, if any, progress. And God's people are looking around going, man, this, this, isn't, this isn't what we thought. This isn't what we were told. We thought God was gonna you know, show up and do great things and it's instead the day of small things. And, and they're starting to question, is it, what, is it worth it? Is it worth it to to be faithful? Is it worth it to to press on, to continue uh, as disciples? Is it worth it to be faithful? You know, the questions that sometimes we ask when things are hard, when when we're praying and it doesn't feel like we've got a connection with heaven, it doesn't feel like there's progress being made, right? All right, so, so Joshua, he's the high priest. Um, he's mentioned here, obviously. Uh, he's mentioned in Ezra. He's mentioned in, in Nehemiah. And he's in a bad way, okay? As a high priest, he has no temple. You know, the temple's in just a few stones on top of each other. Barely a foundation's been laid. And because he has no temple, there's no sacrifices. He's not in charge of any of the sacrificial system, right, as it turns out. Um, and now he's standing in, in God's presence, and his, yeah, his garments are filthy. He's, you know, he's disgraced, right? He's ashamed, he's, he's guilty, he's dirty, he feels ugly. I mean, all of these things, uh, and, and this is the high priest of God. This is the one who represents God's people. And so God's people, you know, feel ashamed, they feel guilty, they feel... Dirty and ugly, um, and along comes the accuser, the Satan. Why uh, is why is the angel of the Lord rebuking Satan? Uh, we're, we're all for it. I mean, good job, angel of the Lord, rebuke Satan, rebuke the accuser. But why? Joshua's not. Innocent. I mean, it's, it's true. What the accuser is saying is, is the God's honest truth. He's a disgrace. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's unholy. He doesn't belong here. So, so what, what basis does the angel of the Lord have to rebuke the accuser if the accuser's just telling it like it is? It's true. Look at him, right? The the basis for the rebuke is not Joshua's innocence. The basis for the rebuke is God's choice. I've, I've pulled them out of the fire. I've plucked them out like a firebrand. It, it's just God's, God's choice. Therefore, shut your mouth, Satan, right? It's based on mercy, not merit. Joshua did not do anything to get God to come to his defense. If anything, you know, the accuser is right. But instead, the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, because of the Lord's choice, because of the Lord's mercy, not Joshua's merit. That's really important that you see. So what does God do? God takes away Joshua's iniquity. He he's, you know, removes his filthy garments. And that's a picture, that's a, that's a commentary, right? Like, you can imagine what's going on here, and you and you know, I, th- I think, need to be careful that, that we don't just simply look at this as, you know, oh, poor, poor Joshua and, and his dress code violation, right? It, there, there's some symbolism here. This is a really a picture of, of Joshua's, not, not just his garments that are unclean, but his heart that's unclean. Not just his robe that's filthy, but his, his heart that's filthy. And what does God do? Take the garments off of them. Now what? I'm the high priest of God and I'm standing before the Lord in my underwear. When I was in first or, or second grade, I, I, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details because candidly, I, it wasn't a great experience and you know how we, we tend to kind of like block out stuff that's hard from our childhood? I remember going to the nurse's office but it wasn't because I was sick i wet my pants. And uh, I guess they, they prepare for such events because, God bless that nurse, she had another pair of pants for me. But it, it wasn't enough that I got my pee-pee pants taken off. I needed a new pair of pants. So, you know, a little first or second grade and can... Go back to class. Um, the, the high priest needed new vestments. He needed a robe of righteousness, right? How's this? This is my, uh, I, don't, I haven't worn this in so long, I don't even know how to wear it. It's like, I used to wear this at weddings back when people did weddings in churches. Uh, <laughs> and this isn't great in a vineyard, uh, as, as is the case most of the time now. But uh, Joshua gets new vestments, clean vestments. God doubles down and places on him something clean and dignified and beautiful and holy. And now Joshua is not standing before the Lord in the Lord's presence, you know, feeling all ashamed and guilty and vulnerable. He feels covered, and he feels, you know, presentable. He feels acceptable. Uh, In in, in Isaiah, we get a picture of this in in chapter 61. Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My my soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And Isaiah goes on to compare the, the robe of righteousness, the garments of salvation with with how a groom puts on a tuxedo or a bride puts on her dress. Beautiful, noble, right? Well, <clears throat> Jesus is, is where all this is pointing and what he does for us as our true high priest. And First um, John, The Apostle John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and of course we know we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the righteous one. He's he's the true high priest with the clean garments. But Paul then tells the Corinthians that, that this one who who had no sin, Jesus, became sin, became a sin offering, a, a, a sacrificial substitute for our sins, so that by faith in Him, all who trust in Him, we might become the righteousness of God, that He who had no sin became sin, so that in Him by faith in Him, connection to Him, union with Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Um, this gets to something really, really important, really, truly foundational about the gospel. And um, Hey, Karis, can we do that first slide? And then let's do this. Just leave the slide up until I, get, I need the next slide. That'll, that'll be better. Um, what we're talking about is what the theologians describe as double imputation. Um, you know, sort of scholar-speak for... Jesus takes away stuff from us, and then He gives us stuff. So our sin gets imputed or put on Him, and then His goodness, His righteousness gets put on us. So think about Joshua, right, the high priest. He's standing there, he's ashamed, he's, he's guilty, he's dirty, he feels ugly. And that gets taken away, and Jesus took our guilt, shame, ugliness on himself on the cross. He who had no sin became sin. He became our sin offering. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning Jesus' dignity and innocence and purity and beauty got put on us. Our sins put on him. his His righteousness is put on us like a robe that we wear are clothed in Christ. This, this double transfer, a, a, a double putting on. Our stuff gets put on him, his stuff gets, gets put on us. Uh, listen to how Anthony Hokema uh, describes it in his book, Saved by Grace. Christ came to earth not just to pay the price for our salvation as one might pay an overdue bill, right? All the College students, college graduates with student loans are going, yes, you know, $10,000 less. Anyway, um, not just to pay some bills and, you know, get us out of debt, but also, also to bring us into and keep us always in living union with Himself. Christ not only died for us on Calvary's cross many years ago, he also lives in our hearts now and forever. You know, we are in Him, with Him, clothed in Him. And we bear His status. We bear His righteousness, not because of our merit, but because of His mercy, right? So, we, on the one hand, you've got Jesus, our high priest, who, who, who transfers His goodness to us But we still have an enemy. We still have the accuser. We still have Satan who doesn't want us to remember this. He doesn't want us to rejoice in this. He doesn't want us to be mindful of this. Instead, he would much rather uh, us forget these things, forget these truths. Paul warns the Ephesians. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the schemes of the accuser. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, Paul's warning us so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, and part of that standing means remembering what God has put on us. Uh, Instead of Isaiah's wedding imagery, Paul's using, you know, armor um, and and a a breastplate of righteousness, not just simply a a robe of righteousness, But, but what Satan wants us to do is to forget that I have a breastplate of righteousness on. I have, I, have, I have Christ covering me. Remember last week we were saying Jesus, uh, Satan would rather us be problem-centered instead of Christ-centered. Satan would rather us forget the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us rather than you know, be, be clothed in it. He wants us to, to be like him and become accusers rather than like Jesus and become priests, right? So let me show you the second slide here and this sort of this progression of how we're looking at discipleship. So Satan's scheme, the accuser's strategy is that we become like him. That, that's his strategy, that's his scheme throughout the world, and that's his temptation against all of us is that instead of relishing and rejoicing the fact that Jesus has given us dignity, not by our own merit, but by His mercy, He would want us to go out and blame other people. And He would want us to accuse other people, you know, instead of how Jesus has given us innocence. He wants us to to perpetuate the, the blame game and the, the, the accusations and so on. Um, the, those are sort of attack postures. He also wants us to, to go into postures of avoidance where instead of, you know, rejoicing in the forgiveness and, and the purity that God gives us, uh, that therefore we would somehow just be denying our, our, our failings or denying our faults and hiding, you know, uh, tr- parts of ourselves where we feel small, where we feel weak and inadequate. That's Satan's game. That's what it looks like to be an accuser. That's what it looks like to follow you know, a path of darkness. But that's not what God's calling us to. Jared Wilson, in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, writes that in the end, as in the beginning, uh, it's, it's not our good intentions or even our good deeds that will get us out of the muck of ourselves. It's God's rescuing hand. It's His mercy, not our merit. It's His enduring announcement over us messed up creatures that I love you. And that's what changes everything. To the degree that we remember that God says, I love you, we will be priests. But to the degree that we forget, we're going to be accusers. <clears throat> Some of you um, no, the, the, the Dailies had a, a, a little, a special trip west last month. Um, we went out to New Mexico to visit our oldest daughter, Rachel, for her elopement. Uh, I got to perform uh, her wedding to Kyle. She's now Rachel Brown. Uh, and we're going to have a wedding here uh, next fall with family and friends and stuff. But, uh, but they were ready, and we rejoiced together, and it was awesome. One of the ways that we celebrated was we, we, we splurged a little bit, and we went to this uh, fancy spa called Ojo Caliente. Ooh, right? Ojo Caliente. Say it with me now. Ojo Caliente. Anyway, so I remember we're, we're a spa. I have no business being a spa. I have no, you know, I'm so uncomfortable, so weirded out by, you know, you can go to this pool and that pool. There's a, um, there's a soda uh, spring, and there's an iron pool, uh, there's a lithia pool, there was an arsenic pool, which I, that kind of threw me. There was a sign, that said, don't let the name scare you. Soaking in arsenic-rich waters is believed to relieve stomach ulcers, arthritic pain, and heal skin conditions. And then it had a little skull and crossbones. You know, right? so anyway, I didn't make sense of that. Uh, there was also a mud bath. Anyway, so all this to, to give you this, um, this picture of the Ojo Caliente Spa. I just felt like I don't know what I'm doing here. But there were some people there, there was a a subtle pecking order to the clientele at Ojo Caliente because there were the day guests, you know, us, you know, the the hicks arrived in our jalopy. And then you had like the the guests, the overnight guests who were staying days, you know, soaking in the arsenic pool. And uh, and and the people who were guests of the hotel, who who were staying overnight, they all had these robes on, you know, nice robes, like luxurious, thick, you know, and embroidered with the Ojo Caliente logo. And they just sort of had an ease to them. They just sort of had a, a confidence as they strolled about the pools. And, you know, they would put the robe off and get in the pool. And they'd put the robe back on and they'd go to the next pool. And, oh, nice to see you. You know, oh, hi, how are you? And we're all just kind of going, well, where's my robe? I do have a robe. You could buy a robe in the guest room, but it was a gray, thinner robe. It wasn't the same. Not the same. Um, look at verse 6. Look at the angel of the Lord, solemnly, I mean, don't, right, if the angel of the Lord speaks, you can trust him, right? But, But nonetheless, solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. I will give you the right of access in God's throne room. Here's a, another way of looking at you know, our little grid here. Karis, can I see that third slide? When Joshua's standing there with his filthy robes, he felt like he didn't belong, right? Unwanted, unwelcome. But, but no, the, the, the righteousness of Christ, the, the new robes that were presented to him, the robes that you and I can have by faith in him, um, that, you know, he, we become righteous in him. Therefore, we are embraced by God our Heavenly Father. We are welcome. In his courts, what Satan's strategy, the accuser would have us, you know, exclude one another. Just have that posture of the accuser, right? No, you're not welcome here. Instead, the gospel welcomes us. And Hebrews speaks to this, that we've got this great high priest, Jesus, who's passed through the heavens, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. Don't forget, right? The righteousness, the robes of righteousness, the chest, you know, uh, plate of righteousness, Um, and therefore we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, What the angel of the Lord tells Joshua is that if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, if you live as the priest that God's called you to be. You have this robe of righteousness. Now walk in it. Adopt this you know, posture that's full of dignity and, and embraces the innocence that God's given you by mercy, not by merit, and the beauty that he sees you with. And if you walk in that kind of welcome, then you're going to be fulfilling the role of a priest. But if you turn from that, you're going to be filling the role of the accuser. In verse 8, the, high, the angel of the Lord says, Hear now, o Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who, who sit before you, who are, are presumably the other priests, the priesthood. And, God, and the, high, the angel of the Lord says, They are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Um. The priests, the high priests, the priesthood, these are men who are a sign, a sign of what? That God is bringing his servant, the branch. Uh, The Old Testament, if you're new to the Bible, um, that's like Old Testament language for the Messiah who's going to come. He's called the branch, and he's mentioned, you know, in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well as here in Zechariah. Uh, And this is a, you know, a a picture of Jesus, the one who's going to come. And what did Jesus say about himself? He didn't, he, didn't actually, I'm, uh, he didn't say, I'm the good branch, but he said, I'm the good vine, right? And that if you're connected to me, if you have life through me, that is where you're going to thrive. That is where you're going to find salvation. That is where you're going to find hope in a future. And how do we know, even today, if a vine is alive or not? You, you see leaves on it. And so the, the priests are the sign of being grafted into the vine. Just like a a leaf, if you see leaves on that vine, it's a good vine, it's alive, it's growing. And the priests are meant to point to the reality of the the branch, the reality of the vine, Jesus, who we're connected to. And we are called to be God's priests. We are his signs, men, women, children, all who are connected to Jesus, the vine, Jesus, the branch. And then... The angel goes on to say, I will will remove, verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, each one of you, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I mean, it's just perfect illustration of God's hospitality, God's welcome to us to come into his kingdom, to sit under his vine, to sit under his fig tree. That's, you know, more imagery of representing his people, his church. We're the vine, we're the fig tree, we're connected to the true vine and and, and so on. So how do we live faithfully as those who are called to be signs to the world? You and I are priests, therefore we are a sign to the world that the branches come. Right? We're supposed to be showing the world that there's life in this branch and come and, and find life your, yourself. How do, we, as the, how do we point to the day when God's going to remove all the iniquity of the world, when Jesus did that on the cross, when he's coming again to rid the world completely of sin? How do we work as signs of Jesus and of his kingdom? So last slide, just one more way to, to think about this. Trying to make it practical, trying to make it visual It helps me. So this is us on the far right. So just as Jesus did for us, right, he gave us dignity. He loved us, gave himself for us. And so we're to honor others. The accuser would have us blame others. Jesus, as our high priest and his priests under him, we're called to honor others. Just as Jesus honored us. Jesus gave us his innocence for free not because we merited it, but because of his mercy, he would have us therefore go and forgive others and point to God's forgiveness, right? As priests. And just as Jesus gives us his his purity, his beauty, his embrace, he would have us go to our neighbors, go to the nations and, and confess our sins and open up about Our need, our our weaknesses, our failings, like we don't have it all together. The accuser wants us to hide. The the accuser wants us to pretend. Jesus would have us just rejoice in the beauty and the dignity that's been given to you and, and don't sweat it. So what if you're not enough for that person's agenda? So what if you're not meeting up to that person's standards? You have acceptance and embrace in God's presence. That's all you need, right? We, are, uh, we, we start our services off here talking about let us welcome one another the way the Lord's welcomed us, right? Is that your habit? Is that your posture as a priest? Satan's strategy is to make us accusers, right? And I, I know maybe some of us are thinking, and it's a real, it's a good question, right? It's valid. What, well, but that makes sense for people who are nice and kind, but what about the people who aren't kind? What about just hateful, spiteful people? Like I'm supposed to honor them and forgive them and be kind to them and welcome them and invite them to come sit under my vine and send under my fig tree? What are you talking about? Like, well, I understand. That's a struggle. That's hard for me. But what is a priest called to do? Just as, just as God has imputed to us through Jesus His, his dignity, his innocence, his beauty, his you know, righteousness, not because of our merit, but because of his mercy, he wants us to do the same for our neighbors. He wants us to do the same for neighbors that are hard to love, neighbors that are difficult to forgive not saying don't be wise. We heard about redemptive compassion. There are ways to love well and not in a naive way. But that doesn't get us off the hook. To embrace them, to forgive them, to figure out how do I love this person instead of writing them off. At the end of the day, Jesus is calling us to priesthood. Pass on to others what's been given to you, what's been imputed to you. This is triple imputation. Giving freely to others what's been given to us. And if this is a struggle for you, if you find yourself in this posture, I'm all, I feel like I'm more of an accuser than a priest, right? God bless you if you can be honest enough to, to even let that thought go across your mind right now. We're not here to pretend like we've all got this figured out. It's possible, right, that maybe you've been trying to do all this based on merit instead of mercy. You, you, you don't, you've never, until now, you haven't really connected the dots. Wait a minute. This is, this is, this is Jesus' righteousness, not mine, not my performance, not my legalism, not my rule-keeping, because if that's your basis for how you relate to God, that's how you're going to relate to other people. Rule keeping, expectations. You're being hard, flinty. But if it's a gift, if it's mercy, then then that's how you relate to people. So if we're struggling to be priests, let's it's 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 um, it's a lifelong pursuit, but it's it's not complicated. It's the righteousness of Jesus been given to us, feeling it. Covering us, becoming more comfortable in this robe, learning that I'm welcome, I belong here, and I don't, need to, I don't need to demand that from other people. Are we accusers or are we priests? Are we walking around calling people out for their, their filthy garments? Or are we pointing them to the one who gives us his robes of righteousness freely? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the righteousness of Jesus, for his goodness, his beauty, his purity, his forgiveness, his innocence given to us because of your mercy. We pray that you would teach us to give that to others without regard for their merits and um, and Lord, to, to love even when it's hard to love, when it's difficult and painful to love. Give us wisdom and how to love well, but please keep us from the enemy's strategy of, of blaming and accusing and hiding and shaming and excluding. Lord, we pray that you would help us to invite our neighbors, help us to invite the nations to, to sit under our, our fig tree, to sit under our vine, which is really your fig tree, your vine, your people, your presence, your, your welcome.